also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet." These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the truth proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Dear Father, we thank you for your words in the Bible. Thank you for loving us so much that you've sent your Son. Thank you that you've given us these words, Lord. pray today that you would open our hearts and minds and help us to uh, hear the words that you'd have uh, Tom to speak and pray that you would bless Tom with uh, uh, guidance, Lord, and have him to teach what we need, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Good morning. In the long passage that Scott just read, Peter gives us the second half of a stark contrast that he's presenting to all the churches. He just finished in the last chapter making the case that God has graciously given to His church His true word through His faithful prophets and apostles. 
Now, in chapter 2, he introduces us to a different kind of word, a false word. He says, but false prophets arose also among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter puts the false teachers of his own day into the same category as the false prophets who arose among the Israelites and Judahites in the Old Testament. And he's about to tell us in great detail how to recognize this new strain of false teachers that follows after the old. I'm going to show you where we're going this morning and then where we're going next week. In that long passage, we're going to break it up into two two messages, but not two easy chunks because Peter weaves themes together and repeats them at different points in the passage. So I'm going to approach this thematically. We're not going to go straight through the text. We're going to look at various points in the text to keep the themes together. First, flushing out wolves in sheep's clothing. We'll see what they do, what they teach, and what motivates them. That's today. The next week, we'll see what Peter says in the same chapter about how God deals with false teachers and how God rescues his flock from false teachers. God's assignment to us all of us, to protect his flock and to protect our own hearts against false teachers demands that we know how to recognize them. And it turns out that smoking out false teachers isn't rocket science. It's actually pretty straightforward once you know what to look for. Peter lays out for us three essential things that we need to know about false teachers. What they do what they teach, and what motivates them. Now, the first thing to know is that false teachers carefully hide their wicked intentions. They are stealthy. Peter says, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. This element of of secrecy or stealth is important for us to recognize because it means that if we're not paying close attention we will not recognize the false teachers who come into our midst. In Matthew 7.15, Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jude, whose short letter is amazingly similar to 2 Peter chapter 2, says of these false teachers that they have crept in unnoticed among God's people. These wolves don't give out wolf business cards and they don't walk around with t-shirts that say, I am wolf. They represent themselves as the good guys. And their sheep's clothing is very convincing. They do not believe in and do not belong to Jesus Christ, but they know just how to talk the Christian talk and to do lots of things that look really Christian. They are very skillful at fooling sheep. Now, we all, especially elders who were appointed to care for Christ's flock as his under-shepherds, need to be vigilant about protecting his people from those who would draw them away from 
the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. But as we do so, we need to be mindful of the distinction between false teachers and those who fall prey to their deceptions. Those unstable souls who, according to verse 18 of this chapter, barely escape from the ones who live in error. Not everyone who buys into false teaching at some level is a false teacher. Kevin DeYoung warns against two extremes. I'm going to tweak what he said a little bit, but you'll get the gist of it. The first extreme that we need to know about is the paranoid under-shepherd who roams through the flock looking at every sheep's teeth to see if they're a little too long or a little too pointy and then pulling hard at their wool to see if maybe there's a little bit of wolf hair under there somewhere. This is the guy who leaves every sheep guilty until proven innocent, and he leaves all the sheep suspicious of all the others. And that's one extreme to avoid. The other extreme I call Elder Riding Hood, great-great-great-grandson of Little Red. He comes across a camouflaged, very well-camouflaged wolf, and he pats it on the head, and he says, My, what big teeth you have. And the wolf, of course, is thinking, you could at least make this a challenge. But, hey, you don't get to find out what the smart ones taste like. The first thing that we need to know about what false teachers do is that they hide their real intentions, their real agenda. The second thing we need to know is that they deny Christ. Again, verse 1 says these false teachers secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Now, I'm going to disappoint some of you by not going into the ramifications of the last part of that verse for the limited atonement, unlimited atonement debate. Wherever you land on the extent of Christ's atonement does not impact the point of this very pointed passage. And my intention this morning is to stay on point. Peter's point at the end of verse 1 is that these false teachers introduce heresies that deny Christ. How? How do they deny Christ? By their deeds and by their words. It's not only by their deeds as some would have it. It's both. Let's look at deeds first. In the same passage in Matthew 7 in which Jesus calls these false teachers ravenous wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, He says twice, you will know them by their fruits. In verse 22, He says, Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? And in Your name cast out demons? And in Your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These false teachers are careful to drop the name of Christ often to keep their cover intact. They say lots of Christian sounding things and they do lots of Christian looking things that they always claim they are doing in Christ's name. But our Lord's good and holy name is the last thing that they care to honor. 
In Titus 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says that such men profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Their deeds are lawless deeds that violate the character of God, the law of God, and the name of Christ to which they so readily appeal. But their denial of Christ is a two-pronged denial. It's both their deeds and their words. In verse 1 of 2 Peter 2, Peter says that they secretly introduce destructive heresies. And then in verse 3, he says they exploit God's people with false words. And in the same passage in Titus, chapter 1, in which Paul declared that these false teachers profess to know God but deny Him by their deeds. He says just a few verses earlier that they are rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. They deny Christ not only by lawless behavior but also by lawless words. Now if you think about it, Even real Christians may do ungodly things at times without ever advocating ungodliness. Most of you who are here this morning know someone, some real child of God, who is struggling right now against fleshly desires, against self-indulgent sins like pornography, or lustful thoughts, or obsession with material wealth and security. Brothers and sisters in Christ who at times appear to be losing those struggles more than winning them. But in the midst of those struggles, the last thing that a real child of God is going to do is advocate those sins or attempt to lure other children of God into those same sins. Struggling saints are not the ones that Paul and Peter and Jude are talking about when they speak of false teachers. And it's important for us to recognize that. They're talking about sneaky, skillful, zealous advocates of falsehood and sin. Smooth-talking salesmen of sinful self-indulgence. False teachers very skillfully lure their victims into a denial of Christ, both by their actions and by their words, working in concert with each other. But what do these false teachers actually teach? What's their message and their method? The false teaching addressed in the New Testament epistles generally involves one of two essential errors. The first is legalism, and the second is licentiousness. Legalism reduces godliness to external rule-keeping, checklist righteousness that's not actually about the love of Christ at all. Licentiousness, on the other hand, declares our sin not to be sin or, at the very least, to be no big deal to God. It demeans the grace of God and Jesus Christ by treating grace as a license to do whatever we want to do. This was a popular heresy in the early New Testament church, and it's exceedingly popular today. 
The false teaching with which Peter is doing battle here in 2 Peter 2 is licentiousness. These false teachers that he's profiling for us are the ones who advocate lawless self-indulgence. There are three key components to what they teach that Peter is bringing to our attention. First, they appeal to fleshly desires. Verse 2 says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Now we read that verse, many follow their sensuality, and we quickly assume that that means that these false teachers are blatantly engaging in sexual sin themselves. But that would tend to negate what Peter says about the stealthiness of their agenda. The mechanism by which these false teachers entice others into sexual sin is not their own blatantly sensual and sinful acts. That kind of behavior might work for David Koresh or Jim Jones, but most churches would not put up with shameless and publicly known sexual sin from someone in leadership. If you don't know who those guys are, Google it. See, there's no subtlety in that kind of approach. That's not how false teachers work. And this passage indicates that if we look carefully. These guys are careful to maintain their own facade of personal piety. Their strategy is to entrap others into self-indulgent sin through a combination of deceptively enticing actions and words. Verse 18, Peter says, For speaking arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Peter's description of these smooth talkers with their high-sounding, empty words makes me think of Ka. You know Ka? The snake from the Disney movie Jungle Book? As he's whittling away at Mowgli's defenses, he says, Slip into silent slumber. Sail on a silver mist. Slowly and surely your senses will cease to resist. <laughs> These false teachers appeal to fleshly desires in others and then they justify the sins into which they so skillfully lure their victims. Jude, verse 16, says these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. See, their lust, their longing is to mess with you. To draw you away from Christ. They'll complain about the same things that drive you crazy, especially things that you don't quite like about the Christian life and what it demands of you. They'll flatter you, appealing to your own vanity, making your most foolish thoughts seem like the pinnacle of wisdom. They'll tickle your ears with thoughts of a more comfortable, more satisfying life than the one that Christ demands of you. The words, the teachings of these false teachers legitimize, legitimize sins of self-indulgence and particularly sins of a sexual nature. 
They make a very clever, very convincing case that satisfying your desires on your terms is a good and necessary thing. 2 Peter 2 verse 2 says many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And that word maligned means blasphemed. What better way could there be to get people to blaspheme the way, the path of the truth, than to convince them that the few who courageously remain on that path are making good things out to be bad things? What better way to get people to reject the truth than to convince them that it's not the truth in the first place? That it's oppressive and unloving and works against human flourishing. Gag me with a fork. Does any of that sound familiar? It should. Some of you probably think that Christians have already said all that needs to be said about the whole LGBTQRSTUVWXYZ phenomenon. But beloved, this is the battleground du jour. Every generation of the church has several such battlegrounds. We did not choose this one, but it's the one that has been thrown in our faces. And there are many loud voices demanding, flatly demanding that we throw in the towel on this. That we agree that every imaginable permutation of sex between consenting adults and now every conceivable definition, self-definition of gender is both good and godly. So like it or not, guys, we need to understand what the real issues are here. I'm going to give you one very recent real-world example of the kind of false teaching that causes the way of the truth to be blasphemed. And let me be clear right up front that I am not making any assertions about whether the people involved are saved or not saved. Fortunately for all of us, I'm not going to be the one separating the weeds from the wheat on Judgment Day. But I say to you, I say to you, brothers and sisters, without any fear of misrepresenting the Word of God or the God of the Word, that God has declared the behavior that's being called righteous in this scenario I'm going to present to you to be sin. And He has declared the teaching that is being advanced in the name of Christ to support that behavior to be false teaching. There is a sizable church in San Francisco that began as part of a denomination that teaches the same essential truths that most of us in this room hold to be true because those truths come from the Bible and are thus true. When that church started almost 20 years ago and for many years after its founding, the founding pastor was touted as one of the most biblically sound preachers in the San Francisco area. And many people that you and I highly respect considered him to be so. That's an area, as you know, that has been long steeped in moral relativism and liberalism, desperately needful of the faithful proclamation of the Word of God. I'm going to read you a few excerpts 
from a letter released to that congregation by its board of elders just over a year ago. This is all public domain stuff. You can go online and find it. But The words in the letter were penned by that founding pastor who, according to Marvin Olasky in World Magazine, has steadfastly structured out any possibility of real conversation over the matter with his own leadership and his own congregation. Here's what he says. God is bringing LGBT Christians through the doors of, and he names the church, and he says, as you read this letter, perhaps you, your friend, or family member are one of them. They desire to follow Jesus and are eager to live faithfully to the gospel and desire spiritual growth. He goes on to say, many of them hope for a lifelong partnership one day that will fulfill, listen, that will fulfill their basic human need of belonging, companionship, and intimacy, by which he means sex. Others are already married or partnered and know that this is a safe place for them to grow in their relationship. He says, our pastoral practice of demanding lifelong celibacy, by which we meant, past tense, meant that for the rest of your life you would not engage your sexual orientation in any way, was causing obvious harm and has not led to human flourishing. And then he says, imagine feeling this from your family or religious community. And he presents this hypothetical quote. He says, if you stay, you must accept celibacy with no hope that you too might one day enjoy the fullness of intellectual, spiritual, emotional, psychological, and physical companionship. If you pursue a lifelong partnership, you are rejected. End of hypothetical quote. And then he says, this is simply not working. And people are being hurt. We must listen and respond. Did you spot the fundamental error in those words as I was reading them? The fundamental error is not that that church is suddenly granting membership to people who are actively practicing a particular sexual sin. That's an error for sure. But the fundamental error, beloved, is the assertion that human flourishing has anything at all to do with determining truth or righteousness. Truth and righteousness proceed from the unchanging character of our holy God. Period. Another error, though it is a distant error to the first, is the assertion that you and I or anyone else knows anything at all about what human flourishing is unless God tells us. This letter declares that a deep relationship with another human being that includes sexual intimacy is a basic human need. What's wrong with that declaration? A whole lot of people agree with it. What's wrong with it? Well, just for starters, it makes Jesus Christ out to be a horribly unfulfilled human being. But the Bible presents Jesus as the only perfectly human, human of all the humans that have ever existed. He's perfect God and perfect man. He's the perfect image bearer of God. 
He is the radiance of His Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature. But here we have a pastor who's declaring in effect that Jesus Christ was robbed of an experience that goes to the very core of what makes humans human. He was deprived of a basic human need. Do you see how this kind of anti-biblical teaching causes the way of truth to be blasphemed? The truth that God has graciously revealed to man in His written Word and in the Word who became flesh. It makes that truth out to be an unloving, uncaring, burdensome, mean-spirited untruth. Now, I don't know if the pastor in question is a wolf or just a horribly misguided sheep, but he does another thing that Jesus says every professing Christian wolf will be careful to do. He makes Jesus himself complicit in his falsehood. The same pastor goes on in that letter to ask a very Christian-sounding question. He says, if Jesus were the pastor of this church, what would he say to the people who are asking if they can belong? The problem, of course, is he's asking a pretty decent question, but he is forsaking the answer that Jesus already gave us and he's replacing that answer with his own. Instead of go and sin no more, this pastor's answer is come and sin some more. And of course, in order to sustain that Christ-forsaking answer, he is redefining sin so that it's no longer called sin. In fact, it's called righteousness. Again, I do not know what's in the heart of this pastor, but I do know that what he's advocating is a destructive damnable falsehood. And the heart of that falsehood is the, dec- is the declaration that a believer's hope, he uses that word, that a believer's hope in any sense is found in enjoying fullness of intellectual, quote, spiritual, emotional, psychological, and physical companionship with another human being. That's a false gospel. That's not the hope of any child of God. Our hope is not in men who cannot save, not even in our spouses. And I have a really, really good one. Our hope, beloved, is in Jesus Christ alone. These false teachers appeal to fleshly desires in you, particularly sexual desires, And then they redefine sin to justify indulging those desires outside the revealed will of God. And finally, these false teachers give us a persuasive appeal to sinful self-indulgence that comes with a promise. And it's a promise of freedom. Everybody loves freedom, right? Listen as I read 2 Peter 2, verses 18 and 19. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, 
by that he is enslaved. The most seductive part of the false teacher's sales pitch is the promise. And that promise is the promise of freedom. Freedom from what? (laughs) Freedom from God. Freedom from the authority of God over his creatures. The very attractive freedom of self-determination. The freedom to live on your own terms. The freedom to dispense with any real accountability to the God of the Word. But bear in mind that their seduction is very, very subtle. It doesn't look like a rejection of God or of God's authority to the uninformed. But that's precisely what it is. The false teacher pretties up the lure on his hook so that it looks just like righteousness, except except to those who really know the author of righteousness well. But every single thing about that lure is pure evil. We've seen Peter's profile of what false teachers do and what false teachers teach. Now let's look at what makes them tick, what motivates them. In the passage I just cited from Titus 1, Paul said that these rebellious men teach things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. For the sake of sordid gain. Sordid means illegitimate and evil. Here in 2 Peter 3, Peter says, 2 Peter 2 verse 3, Peter says, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. False teachers are driven by the greedy pursuit of personal gain. Verses 14 and 15 of this chapter say of these false teachers, having a heart trained in greed, experts in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, I won't spend a whole lot of time reviewing the story of Balaam, but I'll point out a couple of things. Balaam was a false prophet who was commissioned by the pagan king of Moab, Balak, or Balak, to proclaim a condemning curse against Israel, Balak's enemy. That king promised Balaam a very handsome reward if he would utter such a curse. But God didn't let Balaam utter that curse. All of Balaam's pronouncements about Israel were blessings toward Israel, and they all were true. Because God didn't allow him to curse, to utter a curse against his people. So Balaam did an end run around that obstacle. We know from Revelation 2.14 that Balaam coached that Moabite king to lure Israelite men into participating in pagan sacrificial feasts and eventually worshiping his pagan gods. And you know how he did so? By parading the daughters of Moab before those men, by getting the Israelite men into sexual relations with those pagan, godless Moabite women. That event is recorded in Numbers 25, and it's very interesting that Balaam's name is not mentioned in that chapter. You have to look at Revelation to know that Balaam had something to do with that. 
That's the stealth factor we were talking about earlier. That false prophet, Balaam, very skillfully stayed in the background. But he orchestrated a very effective campaign to curse Israel. God didn't let him come right out and utter a curse against God's people, but he still found a way to satisfy the greed that characterizes every false prophet. He found a way to obtain what Peter calls the wages of unrighteousness. And I'm sure that that pagan king paid him very, very well. False teachers are motivated by greed and insatiable desire for personal gain. They're also motivated by a love of sin. In verses 13 and 14, Peter says they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. But look at what they revel in. He says they are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. As they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin. Look at that phrase, reveling in their deceptions. Balaam was no doubt watching with glee, thinking about how he's going to spend all that money as the the Israelite men danced and drank with those Moabite women. He was reveling in the effectiveness of his masterful deception. He was watching with delight as those men ate food sacrificed to idols in the very midst of a pagan sacrificial feast where nobody wondered what was going on with that, that meat. He was watching with delight as those men followed those godless Moabite women into their tents. And he knew that he had accomplished a curse against Israel when those men began to carry around their own idols to those pagan gods and to come into their temples and bow down to them. And all of Balaam's delight flowed from the third key motivator that drives all false prophets. And that is a hatred of authority. False prophets love personal gain as the world defines gain. They love sin, especially getting other people to sin. And the reason they love both of those so dearly is because they despise authority. God's authority. In verse 10, Peter wraps up a declaration about how God is going to deal with these false teachers and how he faithfully delivers his own children from the very clever assaults of such men. We'll look at that whole declaration of judgment and deliverance next week. But I want you to notice for just a moment what Peter says in the first part of verse 10. I'm going to read verse verse 9 in the first part of 10. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. He's talking about the false teachers who are the subject of this whole indictment in chapter 2, and he says, they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires in you, and they despise authority. He says those two things, and he says them in one breath because they're critically connected. These false teachers love to promote self-indulgent sin, and the only way that they can convince you 
Hopefully not you, but the only way that they can convince others that sin is a good thing is to exalt the authority of men over the authority of God. We just saw that in that letter I read. It goes right back to that that false promise of freedom. Their very convincing sales pitch, again, goes something like this. The view of God's authority that's pitched by the prophets and apostles of God in this book is oppressive. It robs people of the very things that make life worth living, most particularly the really great things like sexual fulfillment. It presents an impossible standard that makes life an impossible burden. Surely a loving God wouldn't put that kind of yoke on his own children. That would make him a slave master, not a benevolent God. Surely the prophets and apostles who wrote down the words of Scripture had God all wrong. So you and I need to be our own authority. We need to decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. I mean, after all, we're image bearers of God. God must intend for us to live life on our terms, on terms that allow us to flourish as human beings. Right? That's the appeal. False prophets have been around for a very long time. In Deuteronomy 13, God gave Israel very clear instructions about what God's people were to do with such men. The whole congregation of God's people in any community that heard false teaching was commanded by God to take the false prophet outside the camp and stone him to death. And you know who had to cast the first stone? His closest relative. God provided absolutely no refuge for a false prophet. He didn't even allow the man's own family to protect him from his fierce judgment administered through his people at his command. And of course, as we'll see next week, the false prophet's loss of his physical life was nothing compared to the fiery and eternal judgment that false teachers will receive directly from the hand of God. We are no longer under the law of Moses and we're definitely not called to execute false teachers, but we would do well to consider the fact that under the law of God that Paul calls holy and righteous and good, the law of righteousness that Christ perfectly fulfills in us, God held the entire congregation of His people responsible for dealing with the grievous threat of false teaching. The whole congregation. In the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus harshly indicts more than one of those churches for tolerating, tolerating false teachers who lead His bondservants to commit acts of sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Beloved, if I or anyone else who ever stands in this pulpit or any elder or deacon of this church or any other person in this body ever even begins to try to convince another person that something God's Word calls sin is actually okay with God, every single person in this body who knows about it will bear accountability before God 
to ensure that the corrective process Jesus laid out for us in Matthew 18 is set in motion. Lord willing, if that happens, a private, gentle word of correction, which is the first step in that process, will bring humble repentance. But if there is no repentance, even to the point at which Christ's clear instruction demands that we cut off the offender from fellowship, the bottom line is this. In the community of God's people, tolerance of any teaching that sets aside the Word of God in favor of the Word of man is not an option. Ever. Many faithful prophets and apostles of the one true God laid down their lives to bring us His true Word. Anyone who dares to set a false word before the people of God has made himself the enemy of God and of God's beloved sheep. The church of Jesus Christ must offer no refuge to such a person. Dear Father, fill our minds, our hearts, and our lives with Your true Word just as Peter sets out to do in this book with the people that He loves, with His fellow saints. And make us ever vigilant to forsake every false word. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.